following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Greetings, everybody. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, my name is Doug McGill. I get up to Common Ground from time to time. And uh, I'll just say a few words about myself for those of you whom I haven't met. Um, I live in Rochester, and um, I've been coming to Common Ground for about eight years, sometimes for long stretches at a time, other times not so much. Um, I run a meditation center in Rochester, and we've been doing that for about eight years. And um, we have uh, two gatherings a week there, one on Thursday night, one on Sunday morning. And um, if any of you are ever down Rochester Way, I hope you'll come by and visit us. Uh, every once in a while, I get the great honor of speaking here and, and sharing some of my Dharma thoughts with, with, uh, with all of you. And um, tonight, uh, I, I was really um, so pleased to be given the opportunity to talk tonight because it gave me a chance to explore a topic in the Dharma that I've been wanting to explore for a long time. And that's on the topic of what's often referred to as interdependence. Um, so I'm going to offer a few reflections on interdependence as I've been studying it uh, over the past couple of weeks, um, drawing out some teachings um, given on interdependence by the Buddha and by uh, some prominent great Dharma teachers. And um, so I'll talk for, I guess, maybe 40 minutes, and then we'll open it up to discussion. And if anything that I say or uh, pass along from the teachers triggers something for you, it would be really interesting to hear at the end of the talk uh, what's come to mind for you. The reason why interdependence interests me as a topic is that it connects with my livelihood. Um, which has been journalism for many years. And it's also interested me as I've gotten more into the Dharma path because I often hear it said that interdependence, or it's sometimes called interconnection, is in some way kind of the essence of Buddhism. And I've always really wondered, what does that mean? And I've often wondered, well, if I spend some time diving into that question, what would I find? So the research that I've done over the past week or week and a half is really kind of my first you know, effort to, to really dig into that topic and, and see what I found. I hope that maybe by sharing some of the thoughts that I've had about interdependence or interconnection as it relates to my livelihood might also stir you to think about how this really central topic in Buddhism might relate to your, you and your livelihood, as well as, of course, family life, friendship life, sangha life, life as a citizen, life as a human being, right? Interdependence, interconnection, very central to all of those. 
So I think the reason why I started to really get curious about the topic of interdependence in relation to my livelihood is because sort of in the early 2000s, I started to write a lot about immigration as a journalist. And I interviewed lots and lots of immigrants who had come to the United States from lots of other places in the world. And I wrote about their journeys, their epic journeys from other countries uh, coming to Minnesota and then how they started to integrate into society here and how they were sometimes successful and how they were sometimes not successful. And I found myself really attracted to their stories. And I started to ask myself, um, in a sense, you know, why, why, why was I interested in their stories and what was I hoping to, to give to society by telling their stories? They're stories of interconnection and interdependence. I found myself particularly attracted as time went on, it turns out, I found myself particularly attracted to uh, immigrants who were in the United States initially as refugees, meaning that they had come from civil war, uh, uh, famine, uh, but quite often political conflict that was so bad they, they had to get out and they came as refugees from places like uh, Sudan and Somalia. And time and again, I'd find myself talking to people who had really suffered hard by the time they got here, and they were still suffering a lot here in Minnesota. And I found myself getting emotionally involved and sometimes kind of in a, in a kind of a sticky way that didn't really feel too wholesome or too skillful, um, it, was, it was very involving. And I just started to ask myself, well, what's the skillful way to deal with these stories? And especially then, how could I as a journalist you know, collect the stories and share them with others in a way that was helpful? And that's what got me interested. And I, like I said, for all those years, I've kind of had interconnection and interdependence in my mind as a kind of motivating or inspiring idea, the sense that we're all connected, and I as a journalist wanting to throw a light upon what are often hidden uh, connections between us and the rest of the world, I, I've really found that to be a very inspiring idea over time, that even though we're very dependent and interconnected with people around the world and societies around the world, often our own society keeps those pretty well hidden. And almost as if there's some kind of desire for them not to be shown. And, and, and I wanted to bring those into the light. So uh, this is a, I'm not really trying to plug my book, but I did write a book. And here it is. And my website is www.mcgillreport.org in case you want to learn more about the book. But this is a book that's based on interviews with immigrants in, in Minnesota. So that's how I got interested in the topic of connectedness and interconnectivity, um, interdependence. So um, one of the one of the questions I've had about uh, the word in interdependence or the concept of it is, I, I think again as a journalist I have a kind of inbuilt skepticism uh, to anything that sounds like a buzzword or a word that's just used a lot without ever really looking at it carefully, a word like mindfulness, for instance. And I think interdependence and interconnectivity is one of those words. 
And I've always been a little troubled by the idea or by the kind of unspoken assumption that the more we're connected, the more we get connected in the world, as in through global economic interconnections, um, you know, more travel connections, um, our increasingly inter interlinked uh, media and communicative connections through the internet and so on, that there's kind of an unspoken assumption that the more that all of this builds, the better we'll, we'll all be. That this is a good thing, automatically and naturally. The idea being maybe that the more we talk to other people around the world, the more we're going to get to know them, and the less chance we are to go to war with them. Um, there seems to be a kind of kind of a natural rightness to that idea, and yet it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that in recent years, as we become more globally interconnected in these ways that I just mentioned, economically, through travel, through communication, and so on, things aren't really necessarily going in, in, a, in, a, in a good direction. We're more economically interconnected, but we have more crashes, more economic crashes. And um, right now, the economy of Europe is in a, is in a really bad state. And the United States is, we're not doing too well here. Um, the global environment has suffered from increasing global interconnection up until now uh, more than anything else. It, it hasn't really gone in a good direction. Um, there's uh, more wealth in the world, but there's also an increasing equality gap. Um, and um, you know, one could go on and on. So I think it's pretty obvious when you look at it that you know, a density of interconnections is not necessarily always a good thing. So what might Buddhism have to offer on this, and what might it, it, it tell us? And in, you know, what is healthy and wholesome interconnection, according to the Buddha? Well, so I did do some research into uh, that topic in the Pali Suttas, and I also looked to teachers, two in particular that I'm going to mention tonight, um, one is Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's uh, an American-born monk in the Thai forest tradition who's written about this. And also another one is uh, Andy Olensky, who's the executive director of the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, um, who's also written about uh, interconnection and interdependence uh, quite a bit as well. So one way to look at this is actually to ask ourselves, what are we trying to do when we meditate? That's one way to start to get to the question of interdependence and interconnection. So a question, right, that often comes up at Dharma centers is, is this a selfish activity when we're meditating? Because after all, we're just, each of us individually, just sitting on a cushion, closing our eyes, and to all outward appearances, shutting ourselves off from the world. Well, now, how is that helping other people? Or is it, is it just about helping ourselves? What are we after? What are we doing? Now, I'm going to get to Tanisaro Bhikkhu in a minute, but I'm going to kind of come uh, kind of through a side door um, to start with. And I'm going to do that by reading a poem um, by the Persian mystic poet Rumi. So we could, like, just for a moment, put everything I, I said aside for the moment and just Let's just listen to the poem and see what we get out of it. So the poem is called, Some Kiss We Want. 
There is some kiss we want with our whole lives. The touch of spirit on the body. Seawater begs the pearled oyster to break its shell. And the lily, how passionately it needs some wild darling. At night, I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine. Breathe into me. Close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door. Only the window. Seawater begs the pearled oyster to break its shell. So I think each one of us has created our own meaning as we listen to those words. For me, what the poem connotes, what it suggests, and what it speaks about is a kind of separation or barrier between ourselves and the natural world that we yearn to break or to have uh, broken so that our kind of essence nature can come out and we can unite with the world from which somehow, how did it happen? We got separated. And to me, that's what every line in the poem is about. It's about this kiss that will reunite ourselves from a beloved from which somehow, somewhere in the past, we got separated. Every line talks about that. We want to be passionately reunited with that wild darling. And we know that language isn't going to do it. It's just a matter of opening that window and letting it come in. So maybe, um, you know, the poem is talking about, if it works, kind of allowing us to access that part of our being that wants this kind of reconnection or reunification with the, with the larger world so that we understand in a, in, a, in a visceral, intuitive way our interconnection with nature and our, our own understanding of our deeply intuitive, deeply innate uh, uh, nature and the power of nature that we have within us. Now, is reaching this kind of a state of mind and heart, is that what meditation is about? Are we seeking in our meditation to somehow facilitate that access that some people have called it flow, a sense of oneness, not just with the natural world, but everything that's in here as well, blocking out, you know, not you know, opening and accessing to everything. Is that what we're after? I think down in Rochester, a lot of times when we have our little discussion after, after our sits, it often comes up that people have had moments like that in their life. And they recognize something really special about that moment. And there's a kind of yearning to, uh, to recreate it quite often. And sometimes, whether it's said or not, I think there's a suggestion that meditation is about um, you know, creating the conditions where that state of mind uh, can, can happen. So I... 
I looked to the writings of Tanissa Rubico and Andy Olansky, and I sort of asked them in my my self-study what how they would answer that question. You know, is that what we're after in uh, in meditation in some way? And I was kind of surprised by their answers. And uh, I think both of them would say, in answer to the question that I posed, at least in the way that I posed it, their answer is uh, pretty well no. That, that was a surprise to me. But it's not like they're saying no, the, purpose, the, the, the goal of a Buddhist-style meditation or a Vipassana or an insight meditation-style uh, uh, meditation is, 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 is different completely from, from that goal. Rather, um, I think they would both say that this type of state that I was just trying to describe that I think was kind of encapsulated in the poem is a stage in the meditation that we often pass through. But if we take it to be... Um, the goal of meditation, we're actually limiting the possibilities that insight meditation can bring us. And that and, and that there are actual real, you might even say, dangers to uh, accepting that or shooting for that um, in our in our meditations. So let me just uh, give you, you know, share a few uh, passages from uh, from these writers on this to kind of fill in that idea. So this is from um, a book written by Andy Olensky, who, as I mentioned, is the director, or actually he just recently stepped down as the director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Now he's a full-time scholar there. And he just published last year this book called Unlimiting Mind. He's a, an expert on uh, Pali, the Pali language, and uh, uh, interpretation of the early Buddhist texts with a special interest in the psychology of Buddhism. And he wrote this really interesting chapter in this book called Interconnected, dot, 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 or not. That was the title of the chapter. And here's what he wrote. When I look up the word connected in my dictionary, I find synonyms such as bound, fastened, and attached. Last I heard, these were not considered a good thing in Buddhism. So why do we hear so much about interconnectedness these days? Was the Buddha really teaching us that all things are interconnected? The explanation usually given is that this is what is meant by, and here he uses a word which I'm going to explain a little bit more in a second, is meant by dependent origination. So he says that the explanation usually given is that interconnection in this Buddhist tradition that we're in here is uh, dependent origination. So what is dependent origination? Well, many people say that dependent origination is the core doctrine of the Buddha, that it was his great uh, contribution uh, to, uh, to, um, to the development of uh, spiritual thought, um, that, that he grew up in an Indian tradition um, that, that held certain things about the nature of life, um, and that Buddha came along and in a very disruptive, you know, innovative way, he offered a different idea, and the different idea was dependent origination. So dependent origination has, uh, has been described in different ways. 
it's classically described, and it gets a little bit technical, so bear with me on this. Um, I'm going to try to uh, not use too, de too technical a definition. It's often said about a dependent origination that it's, and the Buddha himself said it was such a subtle idea that he wasn't sure that he should even be a teacher because he didn't think very many people were really going to grasp what it meant. And eventually he was prevailed upon by others that some people would understand the essence of it and that he should go ahead and teach it, so he did. And dependent origination is, 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 is um, uh, uh, he, he, he kind of summarized it in, in his Four Noble Truths um, and you could say that dependent origination is, is, is his psychological explanation of how suffering happens. That's kind of like the, the basic um, gist of dependent origination. And he, he talked about it, and, and later scholars went back and analyzed his words and his teachings and broke up this psychological process in which our minds start in a state of ignorance about the way things actually are, and then in response to our ignorance, that is our inability to see what is actually happening in this life, we respond unskillfully to it because we're not really seeing what's really going on. And the main way that we respond unskillfully to it is we grasp. That's the main thing. The heart of the whole idea of dependent origination as the source of suffering is that we, that we don't see what's really going on in this body and in this mind accurately. And so we're constantly grasping. And the key problem is that we see uh, our mind uh, projects onto what is essentially you know, endless flux. Our mind is upset by that and focuses on what it wants as a kind of anchor in the midst of that flux, which is impossible because everything is in flux. There is no answer. And so we're always grasping. We're grasping to get things that we think are pleasant and and create pleasant sensations in us, and in order to kind of dull or anesthetize this this unhappiness about everything being in flux, we grab for what feels pleasant. At the same time, you could say we also grasp at the idea that we could um, get rid of unpleasant sensations. It's a it's a kind of craving to get rid of something as well as a craving to have something, and so basically we're stuck, right? That you know, we, we really don't like the fact that we're caught in this maelstrom of constant change. And so our mind is like always grasping out to get something permanent and pleasant and trying to eradicate or obliterate what's unpleasant. And of course, we're therefore, we're caught in a, in a real trap because both of those things are impossible given the way things really are. So there's two kind of a couple of classic ways that dependent origination um, have been summarized. One is where there is ignorance, there is desire. When there is desire, there is grasping. This is from the, um, the Pali Canon. When there is grasping, there is a self. There is becoming a self. There is suffering. And another uh, of the classic ways that dependent origination uh, is formulated also from the Pali Canon in the words of the Buddha. And these are the words that I think, and that Andrew Olinsky also says, these are the words that have caused a lot of modern um, meditators to jump to the idea of interconnectedness. The words are, and they sound quite metaphysical, 
um, and again, a little bit technical, but the, the Buddha put it this way. When there is this, there is that. When there is not this, there is not that. From the arising of this, that arises. From the ceasing of this, that ceases. Now that might come close if we weren't, you know, really, uh, you know, uh, working hard to get to the bottom of it, to, to sounding almost like a nonsense, you know, uh, poem or something. But what the Buddha is saying here is, and this is what was so radical and so um, different and disruptive in comparison to the uh, religious teaching to that time, he's saying that everything that happens in our life is causal. It's not the result of some kind of mystical God or spirit or um, unknowable Brahman or the Atman. But rather, things happen for a reason. And they happen because there's causes and conditions that cause the thing to be. Whether that is a positive thing for us or an unpleasant thing for us. So it's almost mechanical. Not mystical. The nice thing about this formulation is that it gives man, human beings, you know, an entry point into the chain that causes suffering. Because if, if suffering causes because of is caused because of certain causes and conditions, well, then there are things that we can do to change the causes and conditions so the outcome is not suffering, but is equanimity or peace or happiness. And this was really radical when the Buddha first proposed it. Now, what Andy's, what Andy's, uh, Andy Olinsky's viewpoint in this chapter is that um, that these these lines and this description of the way life is is not really a, a description of everything being connected. It is more a description of a process that is constantly happening, or in the Buddhist parlance, um, that things arise. Um, together, uh, or so close to each other that they, they, they essentially are together in this ignorance leads to craving, leads to grasping, leads to suffering. These things all come up together um, inside us. And it's the description of an internal psychological process. And it's not a description of you know our t-shirts being made in China, or other kinds of you know descriptions of biological or mechanical uh, inter interconnections. It's just limited to the description of how suffering happens within us. And this is what uh, Andrew is, is really saying in his, uh, in his chapter. So here's how Andy says it in his words. There is nothing inherently connected about dependently co-arising phenomena. That means ignorance leading to craving, leading to suffering, leading to grasping. They are merely arising together in experience. The question is, how will we hold ourselves in the midst of this process? And this is where we start to make the transition. I, I, this is where I, my eyes kind of lit up here because now he's starting to talk about the way to skillfully deal with the concept of interdependence or interconnection. The question is, how are we going to hold ourselves in the midst of this process? 
Andy then goes on to say, the more interconnected we become, the more bound in the net of conditioned phenomena we may find ourselves. I think the Buddha was pointing to a way out of all of this, but it is not through getting further connected. It has more to do with getting less connected, less entangled, less attached. So, for me, that was a big wow. You know, before Mark went on to his three-week uh, uh, silent retreat, I was chatting with him about it. He said, what's your talking to me about? I said, well, I gave it a title like, um, you know, how to live skillfully in a hyper-connected world. And then we were chatting a little bit more, and then suddenly Mark said, would it be possible to be globally non-attached? You know? And I, I really think that's, that's essentially it. It's like with all the inputs that we have these days, including the ability to talk to anybody anywhere around the world via email or websites or anything like that at any moment, as well as let's just imagine that we could sit here and suddenly imagine and know, you know, what were all the unseen inputs, all the different kind of microscopic inputs that went in from, you know, globally that went into us being here right now, healthy, supported, interconnected, we could just apprehend all that and be grateful for it. And we could feel the suffering of people in Syria, China, or anywhere else and not be attached. Not be grasping. Relating to all of it in a skillful way so that when we got up off the cushion or moved into the next moment, we could do something really skillful in relation to everything that's out there. Would that be possible? Where my thoughts and studies of the past week and a half have taken me is to ask that question and to kind of recharge me with an interest in First of all, feeling that through my imaginative powers, through my, through my empath empathy, to be open to all those inputs, but to not get furiously entangled with it or depressed or ecstatic, but to just hold it and then to allow my compassion, my loving kindness, my wisdom my ability to be clear, you know, and allow that to be the operative thing that I, I do in the world. So it's kind of given me a new a new goal or a new target. Um, and it kind of started with Andy saying we should strive to be less entangled and less attached. So I think that was a real kind of a breakthrough. Now I'm going to, um, there's a second real interesting aspect to, I believe, to, uh, to the kind of study of interdependence or interconnection that's out there right now. And I, I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes on that, and let's, let's have a little discussion about you know, what kind of thoughts and feelings interdependence and inter interconnection is arising for you. And this is a, an argument about interdependence that's um, given by uh, Tanisa Robiku, who is the uh, American-born uh, monk who studied in the Thai forest tradition for many years and is now one of the most prolific authors on um, Buddhism, meditation, um, out there. 
as many of his books are in the library downstairs. He's all, and there's a great website with his talks as well. So he wrote uh, and ha has written a couple of very good um, overviews on this idea of interdependence. And um, he thinks that uh, the, the focus on this concept um, and kind of a, and this sort of um, vague kind of buzzword equality about the word uh, that kind of impels us to maybe um, you know seek these transcendent states that are definitely as wholesome as they go, as far as they go, uh, but possibly is, is a bit limited in terms of you know what Buddhism has to offer. Tanisaru locates the beginnings of thinking that way in what he calls um, Buddhist romanticism. And for any of you who want to uh, check this out in a little more depth, he's wrote a great, story, a great article called The Roots of Buddhist Romanticism, which you can Google and check out. Um, but he makes the point that um, you know, historically, and again, this this maybe will sound a little bit like a kind of a graduate seminar or something, but bear with me. I just kind of like this stuff. Um, you know, whether we have sat down and read Henry David Thoreau and read, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson and are cognizant that, you know, the transcendentalists, you know, brought a certain view of nature into American culture, um, you know, that was inspiring to many and a kind of narrow literary way, it's also true that through authors like that, as well as William James, who brought it in through uh, through the door of psychology, modern psychology, which has now heavily um, influenced modern psychotherapy, as well as the broader culture, the fact is whether we've whether we've been conscious of it or not, you know, these this this um, this way of interpreting um, experience and um, the setting of spiritual goals for all of us has been largely shaped by this cultural current, and it's it's romanticism. And so it's I think it's good to just know. And and Tanisaro makes a very strong argument, which I won't I won't um, you know fully uh, describe here. But he makes a very very strong argument that you know it, that it's out there, um, and that it is affecting us, and that. Um, you know, it really is grounded, to get back to the Rumi poem, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau and William James, you know, they really did have the idea that sort of inherent in the Enlightenment view and then the counter-Enlightenment view that the, romantic, that the Romantics had was that, you know, modern society was separating us from nature. You know, and that you know the that that just the rational mind run amok, basically separated us from nature, and that what was needed, what was therapeutically needed, were for us to connect with states that put us back in touch with nature and allowed us to you know rise above the narrow rational mind, um, and that this in itself was a healing state that was that allowed us to transcend and put us in touch with you know really strong. Um, you know, centers of creativity and regeneration and healing within our, our mind and heart. Um, so, for instance, um, you know, when um, Henry David Thoreau went out to live by Walden Pond, he was in search of that. He wanted to live in that state. 
And he wrote a whole book, a very eloquent book, that's inspired so many of us over the years. And uh, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and from a slightly more uh, kind of intellectual and literary standpoint, you know, he, he uh, promoted the same idea about what constituted, you know, sp- uh, you know, authentic spiritual practice. One of his famous essays was called The Transparent Eyeball, which maybe some of us read back in our college days, right, in, in literature class, where he talked about, um, you know, what is God? You know, nature is God. That's what he said. Nature is God. And it's right out there for us to access if we just move into that uh, special way of being that was kind of like a higher rationality and surpassed rationality. So one of his famous uh, uh, passages in that very essay is, I am nothing, I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or particle of God. So now this is what Tanisro says is the romantic spirit that was the Dharma gate for many of us, that we came to the Dharma through this romanticism. And whether consciously or unconsciously, we're using meditation as a way to access that kind of state. That's Tanisro's point. And he is, in fact, in this essay and others of his writings, he is sort of saying to us, he is not sort of saying to us, he is explicitly saying um, that while not in any way wrong or unhealthy, um, that rather uh, this is a, um, uh, a, a limited view of what meditation has to offer. And so what further are we looking for in meditation? So let me just read you a couple of quotes from Tanisaro on that, and then we can, we can open it up to a little discussion. So after he's just, you know, um, he's just spent a little time to discuss this romantic idea of what constitutes, you know, inner healing, which is to be in touch with nature and to discover nature within ourselves. He says, well, that's not really what Buddhism is talking about. And then he spends two paragraphs on that. Here's what he says. For humanistic psychology which would be William James, as for the romantics. And by the way, it would include psychotherapy for you know so many psychotherapists today who are using mindfulness. For, for humanistic psychology, as for the romantics, religious experience is a direct feeling rather than the discovery of objective truths. Now, that sentence in itself alerts us. What he's saying is the Buddha claims that he's talking about objective truths and that we're trying in meditation to to viscerally understand or to grasp objective truth and not to attain a certain feeling. Okay. Tanisaro goes on. The essential feeling that the romantics urge us to seek is an overcoming of all inner and outer divisions. These experiences come in two sorts. Peak experiences, in which the sense of oneness breaks through divisions and dualities, and plateau experiences, where through training, the sense of oneness creates a healthy sense of self, informing all of one's activities in everyday life. However, the Dharma, as expounded in its earliest records, places training in oneness and a healthy sense of self prior 
to the most dramatic religious experiences. A healthy sense of self is fostered through training in generosity and virtue. A sense of oneness, this romantic goal, is attained in mundane levels of concentration that constitute the path rather than the goal of practice. So here he's saying that these you know, wonderful flow experiences that we can touch and that we've all had in our own way is a part of mundane practice, he says right here. It's just a step. I almost feel like it's, you know, mundane sounds a little bit too critical to me. I mean, you know, it is, again, mundane in the, in the technical sense, mundane as opposed to transcendent. I think what he's really saying there is that it's not really, I mean, okay, it's mundane in the technical sense, but what he's really saying is um, to not get attached to it. That's, again, back to Andy's point. If we think that this is what we're going for, are these transcendent experiences we get like once every three years, we're screwed, right? I mean, they just don't come along enough. So we're setting setting ourselves up. They don't come along that much for anybody. And um, at the same time, um, you know, he is saying that the Buddhist uh, path as expounded by the Buddha himself, that is, in the early records, you know, really places a lot of stress. I mean, what's the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path? You know, it's right view, right understanding. It's like understanding what karma is. It's understanding the Four Noble Truths. And we're talking about, like, listening to what a teacher says they are, or reading it, and just getting it in the old bean. That's the first step. And the second step, right intention. It's like learn how to look inside and decide you know, when we're having wholesome intention, when we're having unwholesome intention. And then, hey, we're still a long way from meditation. Step two, meditation doesn't come along until way later. Step three, uh, right thought. Step four, right speech. Step five, right livelihood. Or actually, it's right speech, right action right livelihood. And so these are all ethics trainings. And and we're still not to meditation yet, but this is what he's talking about when he says a healthy sense of self is fostered through training in generosity and virtue. It's like we just go and do these kind of mechanical things as a way to build ourselves up into a healthy sense of self, and then we go into meditation. We don't start with meditation and like jump for that high state. And this is actually something I've noticed in my journey through Western Buddhism is, you know, when you enter it, right, we immediately start meditating. We don't immediately start thinking about, uh, you know, speaking in an ethical way or acting in an ethical way or conducting our livelihood in an ethical way. We don't start with that. But what Tanisaro is saying is that's what the Buddha was was, was was encouraging us to do. He says, Buddhist romanticism helps close the gate to areas of the Dharma that would challenge people in their hope for an ultimate happiness based on interconnectedness. He's saying, don't romanticize interconnectedness. Then he says, traditional Dharma calls for renunciation and sacrifice. Where renunciation, by the way, doesn't mean deprivation. It means 
you know, common, you know, restraint so that we can kind of choose between doing something that's skillful or unskillful. That's what renunciation is about. So traditional dharma calls for renunciation and sacrifice on the grounds that all interconnectedness is essentially unstable. And any happiness based on this instability is an invitation to suffering. True happiness has to go beyond interdependence and interconnectedness to the unconditioned. The unconditioned kind of opens into a new, a new realm, which is, we could, you know, take up at another time. And I'd love to come back and go to part two, but you know, we can, we can think about that. We can think about. Um, Where do we go after our peak experience? What's the skillful place to go? What's the skillful thing to do? And isn't it, in a sense, a big relief to know that that peak experience isn't all there is? Isn't it a big relief to know that we're not really shooting for that? That there is, in fact, a whole, whole lot beyond that. There's a whole world of possibility. A whole world of potential for ethical action. And, you know, lots of possibilities for skillful interdependence. So, what do you think? Hi, Matt. Oh, God, you're sitting there the whole time. <laughs> Great to see you. So, yeah, Tom. Uh, I was thinking about your conversation you had with Mark and the idea of everything happening in the world and how could we be with that not be attached. And then, so that, this other concept that I was discussing with some people recently, and we didn't know any answers, but um, the concept of, or the act of the practice of engaged Buddhism, yeah. activist group of Buddhists who are actually trying to make changes, can you, um, made that thing. Not making changes, maybe, maybe just trying to make things the way they should or are. Yeah. Could you talk about engaged Buddhism? Engaged Buddhism as it would relate to being yeah. in the world and not Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Well, so Tom raises the question about, you know, how, how does this discussion or journey we've been having through ideas about interdependence relate to the whole movement of engaged Buddhism, which is a branch of you know, Buddhist practice where the practitioners are orient, orienting themselves directly towards and consciously towards social suffering, uh, social breakdown, uh, injustice, and, um, you know, all the ills of the world. And um, You know, that, that, that's a great question, and it's, it's one that I've thought about a lot because um, I, I think of journal... I've, 
I would think of journalism as engaged Buddhism. Um, and um, so I've, I've asked myself, you know, what does that really mean, and how how can I how can I do it in a skillful, spiritual way? This is a journey that I'm on, um, and maybe we're all on it, right, in our own in our own ways, in our own lives. Um, I think that uh, people in, who are engaged Buddhists get frustrated a lot because if you look into the Buddhist uh, the early writings, um, which are the texts that most of us in this tradition engage with, that is the Pali Canon, um, those writings and sayings of the Buddha that are thought to be pretty close to what he actually said, um, a lot of times we don't find a lot of really explicit instruction on, on this question of how to engage with social issues. Rather, we get a lot about our own internal states and how to relate to those skillfully. And, um, and um, you know, I myself have gone through that. I've looked a lot for, you know, how to, how to you know, uh, gee, I've learned so much from Buddhism. Did he ever talk about how to, you know, battle injustice, you know, skillfully, uh, deal with inequality and so on? Um, and it's hard to find uh, passages that talk about that directly. Instead, what you get is, and you know what, in a sense, I'm kind of, I'm at the point where I'm just going, knock, 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 it's finally starting to get in here, that what the Buddha says over and over and over again is that the, the, what you need to do is to make sure that you're acting out of a mind that's at peace or a, a mind that's suffused with our higher energies, our higher potentials, our higher ways of being. So uh, if you're, and, and this, is, this is overwhelmingly the most important task. Uh, so that if you're talking with somebody, for instance, I got very interested in right speech because that's what journalism is about. It's about right speech. To me, if, you, if I look at it in, in Buddhist terms, I would say uh, I would want to apply the principles to, of right speech to what I write. Um, well, it turns out what the Buddha is actually saying basically over and over is, is to just uh, be clear about your state of mind before you write. And if you can write, or by the way, if you can act or, or you know, have a livelihood, out of a mind that's at peace and that uh, has good intention, that is attention towards gentleness and wisdom and patience, well, then it's okay to go ahead and, and, and speak or act. Um, and that's about, I mean, honestly, after several years of looking at it, I, I really think that's about all that's said. Um, but that's enough. That's enough. And I, and I think that um, for sure that's the most important thing that's said. And it's, a hard, it's an easy thing to say, but it's a hard thing to do. So the practice kind of boils down to that for me again and again. It really does. It, gets, it, gets, it comes back to that simple point. You have your hand up, but it looks like you're pointing to somebody. Yes. Okay. So and what's your name? With the uh, Alex, climbing the, the mountain, like uh, you know, the top, like Sisyphus, like uh, it, it, like it seems like like once you're done, it's just like oh, the ball, just you know, you gotta do it over again, go up and up and up and up and up and 
okay, so in this case, you've got your the uh, Sisyphus is going up the mountain, yeah, and the boulder keeps pushing him down. What's that? What's that a metaphor for in your mind? The peak experience. Yeah, and, okay. Um, so like. And then we lose it. You get up to the top, and it's like you want to jump once you get up there, and it's like. Uh huh. Uh-huh. How do you jump when you're on top of the mountain? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's what I want to yeah, I, I, I honestly, that's a, that's a great. How do you jump when you're on the top of the mountain? <laughs> you know, it sounds to me like if that's what you want to do, there's a little bit of grasping going on. A, a grasping. It's like what? The, the top of the mountain's not enough for you? You got to go higher? You know, and you know, it's, it's kind of like that. But I think it's a, it's a kind of a great, almost a cone to, to, to ponder it. But if how many of us have got to the top of the mountain, and we still want to go higher? We're looking at. Well, by the time we're there, we're like we're looking around for one that's higher to go to. Why can't we be happy right here, right now? Well, I, I uh, tried to like jump in like. It complicated. It's like at any moment you've got, I mean, the Noble Eightfold Path does have eight, eight parts to it. It's kind of complicated in that respect, you know, that there's like certain amount of book learning or just learning the principles as part of it. Um, and it's good to have those. I mean, it's really good to like internalize what karma really is, what the Four Noble Truths really are. Right at the beginning, it's important to just get that down, to just understand it, you know, because that in turn is what's going to help us to figure out you know, when and what to say or how to say it, you know, and then that will guide us on on um, actions and livelihood, choosing livelihood. And then all of that having been done, then, um, you know, we might be in a kind of state of mind where we could actually sit down and summon the right uh, kind of con causes and conditions to, um, you know, to have a quiet enough mind, one that's not roiled by unethical actions, you know, to really start to see things even closer the way they are. You know, so, like, I'm not disagreeing with you in any sense. It is simple, but there's a kind of a path to it. There's a, there's a, and there's different parts to it. And it's, I think it pays to kind of look at each step of the path and to try to walk that path and see their interrelationship, how one goes to the next, goes to the next, and, and until it's kind of second nature, you know? Because even, even intention, even the whole question of, 
how can we how can we know truly when our be- what our best intention is or whether you know we really understand our intentions I mean it's sometimes it, um, that's not an easy thing to do uh, well we you know now we're getting back to that but there's a kind of a step stepwise approach to it there's a one two three four you know to do you need to do a simple thing like that yeah yes and what's your name my name's John hey Jonathan um, the question of activism uh, yeah the question of activism uh, in the social justice movements has come up repeatedly for me in terms of where I fit in uh, to the whole thing and what I can do ultimately what brought me to Buddhism was that I came to an understanding that I can't control what others do uh, and that it has to start with myself. And, um, and that, uh, that you have to have self-compassion or you can have uh, compassion for those around you. You have compassion for those around you. And um, that's been for me uh, definitely part of, the, part of the ongoing practice and how I relate. Yeah. Thanks. Maybe one more question or comment? Yes, I'm just wanting to make a little plug for, and I think you did in your talk, um, where the Rumi poem takes us to. Uh-huh. Uh, so not the, the highest offering that Buddhism has, mm-hmm. but that it, some sort of romantic notion or some experience of you know whatever this is we imagine or whatever that is where we go reading Rumi's poem oh it's it's not the language door it's the it's the hard window mm-hmm. uh, that that's you know part of helping to create a, a calm mind a, a relaxed mind I just wanted to say that yeah no I couldn't agree more I, yeah absolutely Matt and I'm glad you you raised that the, 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 because in fact you could read that whole poem as a meta poem it's meta and meta is interconnection is is wholesome healthy interdependence is the best kind and it's the whole trick is to is to do meta skillfully you could say and uh, to just always watch out for if there's any grasping you know it's like if you're sending out meta and there's even that much of hoping that some of that meta is going to come around and back to you okay keep working on it just see if you can get to the point where you're just sending it out and I think Rumi the Rumi poem is encouraging us to get to that point but if it's unskillfully done there can be a little bit of stickiness that I was talking about just trying to avoid that. So that's that's that practice that we're always at, moment by moment by moment, as was said before. Thanks for coming, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.